Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron, and with me as always is Michael. Hello! Hey, uh, we're, we're doing a little, we're continuing the winter of children, Michael. Mm -hmm. We're going back in time, we, we've, we've bungled the timeline. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, it's a stable loop, so it doesn't matter where you intervene in it. Mm -hmm. uh, but we uh, we began the winter of children with uh, Marsha Kinder's book, Playing with Power, which, you know what, since we read that, I've been thinking about it consistently since then. Mm -hmm. It was just a good book. It was. Yeah. Just just heart, full, full endorsement. People should read that book. It's open access. Check out our episode on it or just uh, read it. So on the old Internet for free. Um then we did uh, Nguyen's, um The Digital is Kid Stuff, mm -hmm. which is about, uh, well, you know, tinkering around, learning how kids get built in this era that we live in now. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we intervene in education? How do these broader structures prepare you to, like, live in the world mm -hmm. under neoliberal capitalism? That's, that's, uh, that's the, my, my original character, the capitalist. Uh huh. He he lives in a sewer. He uh -huh. like barfs pizza. You know what I mean? He's, yeah, he's yeah. like a real '90s gross guy. <laughs> <laughs> hey kid, you want neoliberalism? <laughs> Pepperoni. Uh, I I think markets are good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting too close to the uh, make me a pizza from Logical Journey to Zumbinis. <laughs> Zumbinis did not appear in this book that we read this time. We went through no. those books previously. Now we're in Engineering Play. Uh, engineering Play, A Cultural History of Children's Software by Mizuko Ito. It's from 2009. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of an older book, but, um, you know, from the vantage of today, from the vantage of 2010, it was brand new. <laughs> Everyone in, in 2010 who was reading this book was saying, wow, this is this is so new. That's right. That's a, that's what you have to do. That's when you're in a stable time loop in the winter of children. Uh-huh. It's it's like every moment. It's uh you ever see Interstellar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's I'm that's me. I'm in uh you know, I I'm in all these people's studies while mm -hmm. they're like cranking out these books. I'm just knocking shit off the shelves. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I'm like plunging at the uh at, at the, what do you call it? The, uh, like, the harp strings of reality. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. saying, saying, write these books so that I can read these books. That's what I'm going to spend my retirement doing. Yeah. <laughs> going back through time and, and uh, helping everyone write all the books that we read for Game Study Study Bunnies. Sitting down and, with and your financial planner. And it's like, so what are your plans for retirement? Well, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, fulfilling stable time loops. That's right. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to need a lot of money on the front end. But not a lot after that, because I'm going to be back in time, pulling <laughs> at the strings of reality. Yeah. Knocking things off shelves. Plus inflation your bathroom will be lower. Weird. Yeah. That, you know, that's it. <laughs> that's a science, that, that science fiction story has to be written, right? That has to exist. Well, just like grabbing as much money as you can right now and traveling back to when inflation was lower. <laughs> yes that like the, you know like a super scientist who uh -huh. like uh it gets into retirement he's like oh my god i'm gonna run out of money before now and my death uh and he goes wait a minute i have the ultimate solution going back to 1971 <laughs> 
um, do, doing a doing a, a, a Stephen King time yeah. travel, but just for for inflation. Anyway, let's talk about this book. Have you uh, have, had you read this book before? I had not, uh, though I was familiar with Ito's work because she has written on uh, otaku culture. Uh, which was mm. uh, I had a course on Japanese pop culture in undergrad, and I think we read an article by her there. I am super familiar with Icho uh, via reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of instances where I've had conversations with other de- academics or whatever, and they've been like, oh, Ito has a book or an article that's about that. And I go in my head, I would go, oh, I should check that out. And I just never did because that's how academia works, right? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you, someone recommends a thing, you go, oh, yeah, and then you just forget to do it. Um, and so that was a little bit of the reason why I suggested this book uh, to read next is that I, after an SCMS one year, after some sort of conference, I was talking to someone. They were like, oh, you should read Engineering Play, and I bought it, and I never read it. Uh, well, here we are. Now I've read it. <laughs> uh, and I'm glad I did. Um because I'd never read any of, of Ido's work, uh, like I said previous to this, never read this book, and I wish I had, like every book. You know, if there's a lesson to take from the show broadly, if you're, uh, you know, like a graduate student or uh, someone who's thinking about graduate school or just someone who likes thinking, right? Um, you got to reconcile the reality that you can produce work and then read other work later. And go, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I would have been so much smarter earlier if I'd known that. Mm-hmm. But you got to be kind to yourself because you exist in phenomenal time. Well, most of you do. Well, until we get that time loop going. <laughs> <laughs> so until I hit 65 and mm-hmm. then we're going to change some of that. But, you know, I uh, reading this, it made me be like, oh, well, wish I'd read this before I wrote my book. Um, but, uh, you know, there's always time, there's always time to write another book and fully, uh, integrate this stuff. What do we know about, uh, Mizuko Ido, um, Michael? Uh, so she is a cultural anthropologist and she is currently a professor in residence and John D and Catherine T MacArthur chair in digital media and learning, as well as the director of the connected learning lab in the department of informatics in the Donald Bren school of information and computer sciences at the university of California, Irvine. She has two PhDs, both from Stanford, the first in education and the second in anthropology. Uh, and she's published quite a bit. Uh, I would say uh, this might be I was looking up because I was trying to figure this out. I was like, you know, like searching for every single thing that had her byline on it, trying to figure this mm-hmm. out. I think this might be her only solo authored book um, because uh, I mean, she is she is prolific, uh, but uh, most of the work that she is doing. And I think this is like a disciplinary thing, right? I think this is a very like anthro thing, maybe that you can get away with. Uh, she is uh, editing collections and she is uh, often uh, like the principal investigator on uh, studies that are published where there's, you know, like 20 other names associated with it. Mm-hmm. So it seems yeah. like that's a lot of her work is uh, leading kind of research projects and then publishing those results. Yeah, I don't get the sense and I'm not an anthropologist, but I do work with a lot of anthropologists. I do get the sense that um, and we'll talk about the timeline of this book a little bit, too, because that does matter for this. But I do get the sense that for anthro, uh, it is like a-okay and very normal to spend 10 to 20 years working on a thing, and then uh, eventually that might pay off in a monograph. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but just because, like, longitudinally, 
you know, it takes a lot of time to like observe people living. And obviously there are people who work on shorter timelines, but I'm thinking about some of the um some of the anthropological work that I've read that where, you know, ten plus years to producing a monograph that sums up the work is very normal. Um, you know, I've always talked about um on the show I've recommended a few times, Do Glaciers Listen, the Crookshank book. And I think that's like a 30 plus year book. And obviously she published in the middle other things, but it's like a, here's everything I've learned in the 30 plus years I've been studying uh, and working with these particular people. So um, I don't think that's super uncommon. Yeah. That, people can let us know though. Yeah. That was sort of, I was trying to figure that out. Uh, and this is, yeah, this is not her first publication, right? She had actually mm-hmm. done the edited collection thing, I think twice mm-hmm. at least before this, that uh, edited collection on otaku culture, for instance, was I think oh, okay. her first big publication. Oh, you know what? Speaking of edited volumes, I just want to say this really quick. I, I, and to follow up on the thing I just said, the reason that we say that about anthropology is like, you might think if you're a human in the world that like all academic disciplines work the same. They don't. They uh-huh. all have like different mores or whatever and values. And, you know, you uh, I'm speaking to the listener here, not uh, explaining this to you, Michael. <laughs> yes. <laughs> obviously, Just to be clear to everyone. But, you know, so, Michael, you're in English and you have a PhD in English. And within English, the expectation is you work on a project and it turns into a monograph. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the payoff eventually for uh, kind of a single research project. Uh, I work in a comm department. Right. And in comm, that's a little bit more wiggly. Uh, it might turn out to be uh, that it might turn out to be just lots of singular publications that all kind of get read together as a um, as a kind of a coherent unit. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but in anthro, yeah, there are different kind of mores. So if people are when they're if you're listening to this and you're not in academia and you're like, well, what are they talking about? Like in anthro, you know, you can get away with it, quote unquote. Right. Right. It's right. Because like each discipline has a widely different set of expectations about what your research is supposed to pay off into, you know. Uh, right. You right. can be a sociologist and, and never have the expectation of a book, although I do think that has changed um, pretty significantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should be clear when I say get away with it. I don't mean that Ito is up to shenanigans. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. like, that's like what you're hearing there is like a little bit of uh, perhaps envy <laughs> <laughs> of how the how the other discipline can live where it's like, oh, man, it must be, you know, I'm sure I'm sure it has like it's it's stresses and frustrations. Absolutely. But uh, coming from a field where mainly what you do is you work alone and you toil and you toil and you write some articles and then you stitch those articles together into a book that is the monograph and that's like so solitary and so uh uh just like what you're expected to do right you're supposed to be writing and researching and publishing and bam 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 uh mm-hmm. it's hard not to look at a discipline where you can take maybe a little bit longer and and uh, where your field work is going to put you into contact with other human beings that you talk to a lot and be a mm-hmm. little a little like, ah, oh, that must be nice. <laughs> Wait, you're telling me that you have deep envy for someone who has to rewrite a massive year long grant application every five years? Because <laughs> that's the flip side of the coin, right? Like, right. Exactly. The other side of that is that doing grant funded research is like kind of a bummer. <laughs> yeah. And I actually I'll have more to say about that when we get into the book, probably, because oh, I, okay. I did some digging on uh, where the various bits of this book came from. And I learned a little bit about um, some of the some of the, I think, um, unfortunate like uh, uh dead ends is maybe harsh of a term, but like there were some funding things, I think, that impacted what Ito had initially wanted to do with her research here. But mm-hmm. I'll talk about that when we get through the introduction. Yeah, things don't always work out. 
Um, sometimes you have a big plan and it doesn't go and that you, then you have to ride around it or you have to figure out what you can say with what you have. So, um, I had another thing I wanted to say about this and I've totally blanked on it. So I think we can probably just, uh, move right on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the introduction, I said that this big structure of this book, it's very straightforward. I actually said to you before we started recording, like this might be one of the most straightforward books that we've done. Um, Mm -hmm. just in terms of. Oh, like, yep. All right. Like, these are the things we're looking at. Here are the takeaways and we're done. Uh, The introduction lays out uh, the theoretical or methodological background, uh, gives a summary of the various parts, and then moves into the chapters, which are about these uh, specific genres that Ito uh, designates within the realm of children's software. Uh, so the intro, what is important to know here is that she's explaining a lot of the fieldwork that she did, uh, and specifically uh, what that entailed was doing observation of children at a kind of after-school uh, computer literacy hangout club kind of thing called Fifth, yeah. called Fifth Dimension in the early to mid-90s. Yeah, like, like, uh, yeah, like, I think it started in 90. Well, there's different data sets. Do was she around for all of them being collected? Or did she inherit some and then was more involved with some of the others? That's a real question I had. Yeah, so uh, my understanding, so the, uh, this is where I started doing research because I was trying right. to figure out where these things came from and kind of Because she says things like, that, you know, there's a data set that is from XYZ time period, but mm-hmm. she doesn't say, like, I collected that data. She just says there was a data set. So uh, Ito's um, education PhD, her first mm-hmm. PhD, which she got in 1998, uh, is entirely this site work. Got it. Like the whole thing, like uh, if you wanted more of the stuff in this book, that is her talking about the weird conversations that these kids have while they're playing on the computer, uh, because there's like a video camera set up, right? They're like recording these kids and then she does uh, transcriptions of certain interactions. Um, uh, The entire uh, first dissertation for the education PhD is just this site work. And I don't know if I mean, it's published under her name. So I assume that it was mainly her project. Uh, And it seems like it took uh, quite a while. Uh, And then when she went into the anthro PhD, she took some of that research and then built on it uh, in a slightly different context. And then it's the anthro dissertation that becomes this monograph. Got it. Well, yeah, I do wonder, you know, there's always like this weird stuff of like, if you have a project that already exists, you right you can't like reproduce the project and so you have mm-hmm. to like figure out well can you use the data set you know what mm-hmm. i mean so i'm sure there i'm sure some of that language is like the negotiation of using some of the same raw materials across two different projects um and also i mean to the benefit for Edo, it was at least both at stanford and so there was the ability to like negotiate that i imagine that would have been much harder if she did a phd at a different institution and then wanted to continue working on similar data from that and working in the same arena at another institution. Mm -hmm. That stuff's always very weird. Yeah. And so uh, she lays out her kind of three genres of children's software. 
uh, which are academic entertainment and construction genres. And each of the subsequent chapters is going to be about these. So I'm not going to bother mm-hmm. really digging into those. We'll talk about those when we get to those chapters. Uh, but the main takeaway for like why why these genres why are we even talking about genres uh this is a quote from page 14 i use the concepts media genres and participation genres to read across different social boundaries and to describe how culture gets embodied and hardened into certain conventionalized styles of representation practice and institutional structure that become difficult to dislodge Mm-hmm. So one of the outputs of kind of the long tail on this monograph, it's like she's, it, it's it's a very interesting thing in that way because so many of the or so much of the site work is happening in like 1996 or whatever, right? Uh, and then the book is published in 2009, so uh, she's uh, like doing this weird thing where uh, she is seeing how children's software changes, even though she's not getting deep into the history. She's sort of like starting at the beginning of uh, sort of commercial, quote unquote, edutainment. Uh, yeah. In in the early 90s, she points out, like we saw in uh, Nguyen's book last month, uh, hey, there's this like discourse that's popping up that's saying like, you know, children and computers go together and we've got this like digital native uh, generation now, right? These kids who are growing up with computers and learning stuff from computers and what sort of advantages can computers offer to regular education? Uh, so she starts out looking at uh, 90s software but then her ultimate claims about it are informed not only by what happens with those genres in the 90s, uh, but then how those things, as she puts it, like get sort of ossified in the 2000s, right? Like uh, one of the sort of benefits of, of this entire project is that she can look at uh, like kids edutainment software and be like, look, the stuff that is being published in the early 2000s is like categorically different in philosophy, uh, from what was being published in the early 90s. Like the the people, like literally the people who were making it had totally different ideas about education. And we can look at uh, sort of the shifts in what those philosophies are. And sorry to spoil the next chapter a little bit. It turns <sighs> out the, the market comes in and starts solidifying things into easily consumptive categories. No! <laughs> Not... No. <laughs> Not markets, no! Ah. Uh, markets, uh, neoliberalism. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I, there, I had a really weird relationship reading this book. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's not the right word. Uh, uh, experience, an interesting experience where I think that this book makes really big promises and I don't know that it cashes every check. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning that I'm, I, I think that like I'm all on board for the how do you create, how do we see these structures emerge that become very difficult to break, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, people people know my investment in this. The world is born from zero. You can mm-hmm. purchase for twenty one dollars and ninety nine cents <laughs> and wherever you want to go, including our bookshop dot org link, mm-hmm. which is down in the description below. Right, you know, I use Guattari's term sub- subjectivation for this, right? You get turned into a subject by technology. It does something to you. So I'm way into it. And I started reading this book, and I was like, oh, I can't believe I haven't read this book before, right? Like, I, I didn't realize how much it, it it's making promises about how we understand these things, right? But actually, I don't think that the book ever gets there. I don't think the book ever 
draws the line for me. I think it tells me, and we'll talk about this in some of the chapters, because I really like the chapters. I'm not saying any of this to be like, and so therefore the book is bad. Um, but like there's there's this like inference I'm left to make at the end of this book where it's like, I know all the practices, right? And we're gonna we're gonna read the we're gonna talk about these chapters where she's telling us about how these kids play these games and adjust their expectations of the world to how the games ask them to engage with the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. But I don't really understand the second point. And so I'm bringing this up now in order to like be attentive to it the rest of the book, which is I don't understand it, if it is so easy for these children to learn these methods, why is it so hard to break? Mm-hmm. Like, why do they become ossified or petrified or a part of the kind of firmament for these kids? Because it seems like kids in this book are very flexible with learning new styles of play. And also some of them are coming in with like different expectations that are augmented by the room, but but are not produced by the room. Dr. Brain is not by itself inventing new kinds of kid, right? And so there's like this kind of question for me of like, well, where's the space in the middle? Where's the space space for negotiation? I, you know, I'm naive on this issue. Where Where is cultural studies proper, right? Uh-huh. In order to explain some of these things. And we do get the circuit of culture. I think Ido is like doing the right citation here in terms of trying to explain what the processes involved are. Not even trying to, explaining what the processes involved are. But I think this book, this book is like right at 200 pages. And I think I did need another 70 in order to understand how we get from practices of entrainment in a particular, you know, technological system, uh, you know, in order and then get to adults who are completely ossified in their subjectivity and can't break away from the expectations of capitalism, right? Like, Mm -hmm. there is a gap there that the book at the very beginning says we're going to account for, and at the end says we have accounted for, and in the middle, I have not understood how it is accounted for. And and again, I like the book a lot, but I do think that one of the biggest promises made by the book isn't really cashed out here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say, I would say that's fair. I was always expecting a the the cultural studies angle to come in a little bit harder than it does. I had the exact same thought as you it was like, oh, yeah, no, there's like a little bit of Stuart Hall in here because this is all about uh, negotiations, right? Like, what are the expectations of the people who produce children's software? Mm-hmm. What are the expectations of children themselves? And then what are the expectations of the various adults who oversee or like get kids to interact with this software that could be teachers and that could be you know like the undergraduate attendance at this fifth dimension after school club yeah and that analysis is so, i mean we'll get to it but that analysis is so good mm-hmm. um yeah i guess you know part of it is like some of this is disciplinary and some of it is academic flavor right like what was passe in 2009 i think maybe that's the cultural studies um evocation but not full commitment is that i think cultural studies was understood to be a little bit passe at that moment too in a way that it's i think come back in a really profound way uh you know foucault shows up but as the incitement to discourse stuff right not Mm -hmm. as the um the disciplinary work of sitting where the machine does stuff to you right (laughs) right um you know the thing that i would i would want to belabor there so it's just an interesting thing that that really stuck out to me is like i'm so on board for the thing and I understand how I could like make the inference to get there, but I don't think like the words are not on the page. I don't think to to kind of get me to that 
think. But we can talk about some of the words that are on the page because um, they're fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just like one like last little thing, I think, sure. before yeah. we jump into the next chapter. Uh, because I've laid this out, right? She's she's basically said, like, I'm going to look at these particular genres, explain what they are and, and kind of how all these pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I said earlier about kind of funding issues and uh, getting grant applications. So there's a bit near the end of the introduction uh, where she's explaining, you know, sh- that she did fieldwork here at Fifth Dimension. And then there's another site that she did fieldwork at. Uh, it was... Uh, a sort of like similar club that was started by her question mark uh, and some other people at the East Palo Alto Stanford Summer Academy. Uh, Yeah. Itasa or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Itasa. And this is important because obviously uh, it's the mid nineties and we're in Palo Alto, right? Like there, there's a socioeconomic factor here to account for. And like she is upfront that people at the, the kids at fifth dimension are typically from middle-class families, right? It, the fifth dimension is like hosted within a boys and girls club, uh, in a particular like area. And it's, it just, it, it has a, a, a socioeconomic status. Uh, the other one has, and also like, you know, it's, it's a class and a race issue. Cause she points out that at this other site, um, they had uh, African-American families and one Latino family, and they, mm-hmm. I think, were of a lower socioeconomic status. Um, but then she says, uh, quote, the kids from this local club are in many ways my primary informants, although they are not necessarily the ones most heavily represented in this book. And truly, uh, throughout the rest of the book, I think every observation she makes comes from the fifth dimension site work. Mm-hmm. And I thought that yeah. was interesting. I, I was curious about what was going on there uh, and like what what was happening here with this. And so this is where I looked into uh, like her research history. And I found out that her education dissertation from 1998 was all of this site work. And we get a bunch more about uh, what happened at Apasa there and particularly in her uh, intro or we get more, but proportionally, it's still mostly fifth dimension. And the reason for that, as she explains in her introduction to the dissertation, uh, is that um, they ran out of funding and the ability to staff. Uh, she says in that introduction mm-hmm. in the dissertation that work there had uh, her her term is tapered off, but she's hoping to get more grant money to uh, do something more there. So it seems like they ran it for a short period, uh, but then couldn't keep it going and uh, basically did not come out of that with uh, enough material to actually cite, right? She, she didn't huh. have enough to say about, or at least in this context, because what I did learn, this is interesting to think about, particularly with Nguyen. And I do think a little bit of it shows up uh, maybe in the the fourth chapter. Yeah, it shows up a little bit in the fourth chapter. So one of the things she says in that dissertation is that her work at Epasa, those kids are also a little bit older. And so they're not just playing games. They're also uh, learning how to use Microsoft Word and PowerPoint and things like that. Um, And later on in in the chapter on construction, she brings this up where she says that, uh, you know, there are kids who are using PowerPoint, which is business software, uh, to make little fun illustrations and like greeting cards for their friends. 
so there's something going on there, and we can talk more about that, that in that chapter, but the thing that it, you know, immediately pointed me to was Nguyen's book from last month, where, oh, these kids are learning to use business software, right? Right. Right. Like there's they're, they're playing with it, but they're also learning how to use software that they're going to have to use in, in jobs theoretically in the future. So um, just a connection there. But it just seems like it she didn't have enough of a data set or a, a, a way to like really work it into whatever the claim of this book is. Yeah. And it seems like she spent a lot more time, you know, because when she says they're the primary inform informants. Right. Mm -hmm. The notion there, I think, being that she spent so much more time with them. Yes. Um, because the other kids she interacted with, but mostly it's reviewing videotape, right? Right. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, there are like undergraduate assistants who are working with the kids, and she seems to be reviewing videotape. And it does seem like at Ipasa, she is working directly with the undergraduates and some of those kids. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about first chapter? Yeah. Academics is what it's called, and this is on the academic genre of children's software. Basically, uh, talking about where does where does uh, edutainment come from, uh, or you know, edutainment is a marketing term. Uh, hey, Michael. Yeah. Where does edutainment come from? All right. So <laughs> when you when learning and fun really like each other. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they, they, I thought you were going to go the other way. We're, I, I'm not having this conversation right now. <laughs> they produce a licensing deal with a noted <laughs> children's book author. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, so yeah, that's it. Like, uh, uh, tracing very briefly kind of the emergence of children's entertainment as a category. And uh, some of this feels very familiar again from reading Nguyen last month, uh, mm -hmm. where it start like, uh, uh, Early ideas about kids entertainment is that it's all supposed to be like didactic preparatory for adult life, teaching them morals, so on and so forth. Uh, at about the mid-century point, at least in the U.S., we start seeing uh, like a children's culture that is indulging fun for its own sake. This is also being paired with the rise of philosophies that are saying that, hey, kids have to have fun in order to learn, that it's okay for them to have a little bit of fun or uh, uh, to have a little bit of like, you know, wow or pizzazz. That's not just uh, literally a, a thing that is mentioned is uh I think it's maybe in the 30s or 40s. It's like uh, like experts are advocating unpainted blocks for children to play with. Right. Like, no. So we can paint the blocks. Right. right? The 50s right. happens and we can paint the blocks. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but there's uh, uh, obviously like the ideologies at work here. There's like a suspicion, at least in, in some part. Right. That uh, if it's if it's fun, then it's not truly learning. Right. That there is like uh, kids are just. Uh, uh, indulging themselves and eventually academic uh, software by the end of this chapter gets into a point where it's tr that this is how it is selling itself as both yeah. uh, indulgent and educational right that both you can make can things fun and mm -hmm. educational right and this is what uh, if people uh, think back to our James Paul G episode mm -hmm. this is like what G is railing against mm -hmm. this is what he is so pissed off about is like Reader Rabbit. <laughs> because, like, it's not using the affordances of games in order to provide a ground for, like, exploration and education. It's edutainment games, right? Mm -hmm. uh, of the academic variety. 
just like Mr. Brain. <laughs> or Dr. Brain. It's something yeah, it's brain. Dr. Brain. Uh, Dr. Brain. Yeah, so there's like a lot of interviews with this woman named Anne McCormick. Was that her right first name? Yes, Anne McCormick, mm-hmm. who was the founder of the Learning Company, uh, kind of one of the first edutainment software companies, although she hates the term edutainment. I think that gets uh, uh, dreamt up after she's already sold the company. She has, McCormick that is, has a particular style of, or a particular philosophy of education um, that is about using technology to uh, teach kids using the affordances of the computer to teach kids in new ways that you wouldn't that they wouldn't experience in the typical classroom and also uh the urge to reach underserved populations right that there is a belief from McCormick and in kind of the early learning company work that there is a uh, democratizing potential within educational software uh and then as we move into the 90s and uh, educational software becomes a more so- solidly commercial enterprise, uh, we see the introduction of market demands. So uh, games start being advertised by the way that they align with specific curricular content, which means that rather than being um, something like Oregon Trail, uh, which is uh, open-ended, Right. Like, obviously, there's like facts that you'll learn if you're playing Oregon Trail, uh, but you just kind of have the thing that you need to do, which is go through the Oregon Trail and figure out how many supplies you need and how best to cross rivers and all that. We see a drift from a kind of sip simulationist or sort of at least a more open-minded uh, ways of thinking about what computers can do in terms of education uh, to like straight up, here's the types of math problems that you learn in the fourth grade. Here is a piece of software where you play a little cartoon character who wanders around some nice environments and NPCs ask you math problems and you solve them and you get little prizes and then at the end it shows you how well you did. And so it reproduces the the logic of the classroom in terms of grading, hierarchizing, and achievement and things like that, which are things mm-hmm. that McCormick was, is initially, not initially, she doesn't change her position, right? She's against this sort of stuff, but we see uh kind of the the market demands fit with the classroom demands, uh, which ultimately results in very linear. Uh, the, the Dr. Brain example is, is, is a good, right? This is kind of like her main case study is this game called The Island of Dr. Brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know what people are thinking. Uh-huh. You're thinking the game The Brain of Dr. Island. Mm-hmm. And that that's not it. It's The Island of Dr. Brain. Right. Uh, nor it is The Brain of Dr. Island. That's right. Right. Uh, So and this is like so what this game appears to be uh, is kind of like it's just an adventure game. Right. You have Mm -hmm. like little scenes and there are like little puzzles within the scenes and you solve them and then you move on to the next scene. Uh, But the thing that she points out is that the content of the educational puzzles is basically divorced uh, from like what is going on in the game. Like the the game just has like these little interludes where it's like, oh, now you have to solve a math problem. Mm -hmm. Or the other problem is that uh, nothing builds on itself. Uh, And so this ends up like what ends up happening is that kids become really good at strategically guessing for answers for the sake of progression rather than actually internalizing anything like mathematical principles or what have you. Yeah, the complaint here is, uh, you know, the criticism, both by the industry and by Edo, it seems too, right? Like, it seems that that this is shared by the kind of 
writing voice of the book uh, is that by attaching this educational content to the adventure game form, like very specifically the way, because I don't know if you looked at screenshots of the Island of Dr. Brain, but it's it's a straight up like Monkey Island. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like it's an adventure game, adventure game. And so like you're fitting um, evaluation exams, test taking, right? Which is essentially like, are you, uh, can you get past the post to progress to the next thing? It's just putting that into adventure game levels. And so what gets produced is like, just a, like a hard adventure game where the puzzles are math or whatever, as opposed to like insult sword fighting. Um, and it, it's just, it's just a straight up video game in, in that way. And so, I really like that Edo is like, and, and so kids use the two things that you would use uh, both in education and in video games. One is guessing, and, and we could talk about like the the really useful guessing mechanisms that these kids come up with. And the other one is just like meta thinking, right? So in mm-hmm. the same way that you can get good at test taking, um, you know, as an abstract form, you can get good at playing the Island of Dr. Brain without having any content mastery whatsoever. Right. Um, and so that's kind of like the double the double edge criticism here and specifically uh, leverage like via game studies. Right. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah. And so this is uh, important because of like she also talks a lot about like the culture of the children who are playing at fifth dimension, which we haven't even really gotten into how absolutely bizarre. Let's talk about like. fifth dimension. <laughs> Please, let's do it because I, there's some ultimate gamer children there. Uh-huh. And I want to talk about those gamer children, but they have been tricked into being ultimate gamers. I would say not just by the island of Dr. Brain, mm-hmm. but by the very format of the fifth dimension. Now you might be wondering, five dimensions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can go to the Boys and Girls Club, and at like 2 p.m., a computer lab opens up. There's a piece of uh, poster board that keeps you from getting in there otherwise, mm-hmm. apparently. Uh, poster board goes away. You can get in. There's like 10 computers. There's a 3D model of a maze. Yeah. Like in the room. And it's all controlled. And it's like a little, like a tabletop maze. It's not a full. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, <laughs> listener. Full maze that children have to solve before they get to the computers. No, it's like a little maze. And it's all controlled by a mysterious figure called the wizard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The wizard is a patriarch of sorts Mm -hmm. who provided the computers here Mm -hmm. in the fifth dimension, in this room called the fifth dimension. And occasionally we'll have a birthday. Yes, this is where new games get released. Or sometimes he'll just give you a gift. He's like he's like a capricious king in that way. Right. Uh Yeah. The point. Well, I don't know what the point of it is. I think I think the point of it is what you were talking about before. Right. Kind of computer literacy, learning with educational software, that kind of stuff is the general notion. But it's structured by this maze that exists that like basically you navigate through the maze and you have like a little card it seems that has like your progress in each of these games and to go from like room to room in the maze actually she keeps calling it a maze it actually sounds like a dungeon to me yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> like a dnd ass dungeon to progress mm-hmm. through the dungeon you have to uh play each of these games kind of in sequence and then complete things in the game so you have to hit these like educational posts mm-hmm. and once you have done that you become the wizard's assistant. It's it's specifically the young wizard's assistant is, so is the term. 
Yeah, you can't be a, an adult. Oh, well, maybe the under. Okay, well, okay, hold on. So after you do that, you can kind of free play. You can mm-hmm. do whatever you want. So it's like they, they make you like learn enough about computer games to then go do it. This is facilitated by a site manager who is not the wizard. It's it's the wizard's underling. Uh-huh. And then a bunch of undergraduates who were like, well, sit with these kids. And I, I think they're kids. I mean, they're like 10, right? They're, yeah. They are... Because the quote unquote older boys are like twelve to fourteen, so it's mostly preteens. Mm-hmm. And uh, so undergrads will sit with you and like explain what the hell's going on in this computer game. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're and they're writing field notes constantly because these kids are getting studied. Mm-hmm. And so she's re- she's quoting from the undergraduates' notes, and also sometimes they're being filmed, like everyone's being filmed. And so she will quote transcripts from the video feed that that they had from that. I, the reason I guess the the reason I was saying that young young wizards assistant that must distinguish them from the undergraduates who might be just wizards assistants is that true that I I don't know if she says that explicitly but I that might be my sense because the important thing about being a young wizards assistant is that once you've achieved that status you are supposed to uh, help other kids learn mm-hmm. how to play the games right yeah um and that's where some really Interesting and occasionally troublesome stuff goes on, particularly with this kid that she calls Roger, who becomes like the the little in-house expert, like the the young wizard's assistant expert on. By the way, it's unclear to me. I think the wizard is like something that they see via TV only. Is that the right? The wizard is the you market. Just... The, the wizard <laughs> is, I'm, I'm the wizard. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me tell you about what you got to do when you grow up. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the wizard is just like the the capricious effects of market capitalism, right? And <laughs> I think maybe he's like a big cardboard standee. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I don't I don't know. Or maybe someone shows up dressed as him on his birthday. But yeah, you might be right. He might just be like on a TV somewhere. Yeah, some some kind of Big Brother <laughs> scenario. Yeah. I was just yeah. I just wanted to clarify that in case people were like trying to uh, picture this in in their heads, and I just wanted to let them know. Like I mm-hmm. I do not think that there's a person in a wizard costume running around. There might be, but I. I whatever because there are multiple no, he's very rarely referred to like like in person right i think he like, just shows up for his birthday <laughs> right there are multiple fifth dimension sites that's the important yes. the other important thing yeah. is that this is not the only fifth dimension site so i get the sense that maybe he's, he's like busy. a chuck e cheese type mascot yeah that's um, right uh so anyway uh roger uh is the kid who becomes kind of the in-house expert on on dr brain mm-hmm. uh and ito talks about like how, you know, sometimes he's helpful to the other kids and sometimes he'll just like mock them and call them stupid for not getting the answers right. I don't think Roger's ever that's so charitable to Roger that you just but I don't think Roger is ever helpful to anyone. <laughs> I think Roger is like a net negative in the fifth dimension. That doesn't stop me from loving Roger. I think uh-huh. Roger is the, maybe the most entertaining academic child I've ever read about. This is up there with I make the Lego racers go in terms of of like behavior of a child in an academic book that just is delightful to me. Roger, uh, he doesn't understand how any of the games work at a fundamental level. Mm-hmm. Right? He doesn't understand how to do the math or the puzzles or anything. But he is extremely good at intuiting game mechanics. Mm-hmm. He's like a natural. He's the ultimate gamer. Right. And so Roger will roll up on people and be like, look, I know how to do it. 
and he doesn't know how to do it. He just knows how to, he knows like the formula for guessing really good. Uh huh. And they'll just click around and he just keeps doing it. And when he accomplishes it, as you just said, right? When he accomplishes something, he will be like, I'm the smartest person here. <laughs> yeah. He'll say that to these kids. And if the other kids can't do it, he'll call them stupid. Yep. He's just like the most rude ass little kid. Obviously, Roger has uh, a lot of other stuff outside of this room going on. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like he, Roger's a complicated character. I don't. Mm-hmm. I would never judge Roger based on like the three hours of day he is being recorded. It does seem to me, just purely from the outside, reading the transcripts, reading the summary, that perhaps Roger does not get enough attention from adults in his life. Yeah. And so he's doing a lot of performance of mastery. You know, if you spend any time with kids, if you spend time with young adults, you can see this. This is a common thing that appears in kind of uh, intelligent kids, but who don't get enough attention. Mm-hmm. And, and not enough attention, like, at their level. He's clearly a smart kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but he performs that smartness in a in a in a in a, in a antisocial way. <laughs> uh, yeah, but but he does present. He becomes like the emblematic of the way these games encourage you to interact with the world, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is. I'm just going to read this transcript. This is between Roger and, and an adult. Uh, and there's a puzzle in the Island of Dr. Brain where you have to do. There's some sort of like physics puzzle. Essentially, it's it's. Uh, very weirdly described as like the rat based elevator problem, mm-hmm. which is delightful. Uh, but apparently like you, I don't know where the rats come in. Maybe you're moving rats off like a counterweight or something. Uh, but I know that if you mess it up, you can cause the elevator to like crash. And there's a crash test dummy in there that like goes <laughs> like flying out. And the kids love to do this. Obviously they love to get yeah. the puzzle wrong so they can kick the, the dummy around. Um, But here's Roger talking with an adult about this puzzle. Roger, now I can open it. Opens door to rat-driven elevator problem. I love this puzzle. This is so funny. We just guess. Me and my friend did it, and we just kept guessing. Adult, oh really? It kept kicking me out. Watch this. So what you do, this is the adult, so what you do is, pointing to screen, you divide the elevator weight into the counterweight. Roger, inputs a solution and the elevator crashes. Oh no! Adult, crash test dummy. Game states correct answer and then resets puzzle. Roger, oh, it was 12 and 24. Oh, I see. Game has kicked him out of the puzzle and he re-enters it. Adult, how many times does 428 go into 1,284? Roger, I have no idea. I'm just guessing. It works. He eventually does it. Yeah! Elevator is lowered successfully. Am I good or what? Adult, pure luck. (laughs) It's great. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Roger has successfully, like, scratched through the plasticine surface of modern reality and realized it's, it doesn't matter if you understand anything as long as you can operate the system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Understanding is not required for anything in the world. <laughs> it's all just a play of surfaces. You know what I mean? Like, it's, uh-huh. Ro- Roger is the, Roger, come down here to the sewers with me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right? Like. That's just he's he's figured it out and he's so annoying about it because he's a child. It's Mm -hmm. not it's not his fault. (laughs) But uh, but I do look like that. He becomes like, you know, the stand in for modern reality. Yeah. You know, we used to ask who is John Galt. (laughs) Now we ask who is Roger? Who is Roger? Yeah. Roger's like an adult now. Is that is that interesting to you? I well, that one of the Roger's probably older than me. 
one of the things I was thinking about in reading this book, particularly these case studies, is that so much of the software that Ito describes in this book is software that I remember using in the computer mm-hmm. lab at school. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Like I was like, I, I never played uh, the Island of Dr. Brain, weirdly enough, but so much of the older stuff is like, oh, yeah, like this is like my generation of edutainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carmen St. Broderbund comes mm-hmm. up here, like, in, I think in the next chapter, maybe. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Broderbund was like the software suite that of edutainment that I accessed. And then like Reader Rabbit and stuff like that, Math Blaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was more of my generation. But yeah, so more than likely, Roger is like older than I am. Mm hmm. And is like uh, probably a hedge fund manager. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like Roger has figured it out. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Who could, who could complain? But yeah, that's kind of where the chapter goes, right? Is being like, hey, Doctor Brain encourages engagement. Doctor mm-hmm. Brain encourages a particular form of um uh uh I don't I don't know systemic mastery. Mm-hmm. And that that can sometimes align with the image of education, but is in fact just about system manipulation. Right. And so uh, what Ito says, and this is a quote from page 81, Roger, uh, across the circuit of culture, Roger shakes hands with game designers who reinforce particular genre recognitions, despite local adults differing educational philosophies. So there's a way that uh, Roger can pick up on the game design at the expense of the content or the educational aim, which is what the adults want him to focus on. But in this way, uh, game designers and kids are actually more on the same wavelength, right? Designers know what they're designing toward uh, in terms of, like, the kid audience, uh, and then the content is just sort of, you know, shoveled in later. Right, which we learn about, I guess, in the next chapter. And this is why, the reason it's called academics, as you said before this chapter, is because this is what she calls, like, the academic genre, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the alignment with very specific... Um, um, uh, I don't know educational concepts with game mechanics, mm-hmm. but without any kind of underlying philosophy of education, maybe. Right. Um, which then leads into what she calls entertainment. Mm-hmm. And that's the next chapter. Uh, and as you said, the the Broderbund, like Carmen San Diego, is the first example here as a game that again I also played. Uh. But uh, it was often seen as educational because it teaches you about places in the world and their landmarks and whatnot. But the people who created it had no real educational designs, right? Like it was created initially as a piece of entertainment. uh, And it just so happened to focus on the thing that it happened on because the creators really loved looking through atlases when they were kids. Mm hmm. And so it, it like walks backward into seeming educational or to being uh, potentially educational, uh, even though it is like entertainment forward in, in its uh, composition. Um, and this is kind of where uh, or like this chapter is mainly about that. Right. How are things that are more explicitly marketed as entertainment um also dipping into discourses of education or like the I think is is this the chapter where uh like the critical thinking thing comes up like there's like a friggin Star Wars game it's like like Gungan colonization simulator or something uh there's it's, a couple of them there's like uh pit droids yeah right right these Star uh, Wars which I remember 
I never played it, but I do uh-huh. remember it. And it kind of looks like it's like a con- it's it's isometric. I looked it up. It's like isometric, uh, but you're built. It's like a uh, factorio kind of. You're uh-huh. like directing them and moving them around and like not crossing the streams and stuff. Uh huh. Where's where's the episode of AMCA about this? <laughs> yeah, where's Pit Droids on AMCA? Yeah, come <laughs> on. Yeah, so like the the I think this is the chapter where that comes up. Where I was thinking like like you know these 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 are Star Wars games that are on their packaging saying like this is going to teach your kid critical thinking, right? Whatever that means. <laughs> um, uh, oh, and this is also about kind of the emergence of like multimedia as a as a term in the early two thousands as a way of uniting uh, kind of, the other I guess. I I mentioned it, right? Star Wars. There's licensing happening now, right? That there is a crossover Mm -hmm. between children's visual popular culture, things that they like to see on TV or movies they like or whatever, uh, and then making computer-based versions of those things. So the big central – actually, there are kind of two central-ish case studies uh, in this chapter. One is a magic school bus game, and then the other one is SimCity 2000, which also shows up in in the next chapter um, more substantively. Uh, But uh, the magic school bus game is – uh, fascinating because it's filled with fart sound effects and the children love to make the game make fart sound effects even as the adults stand by and are like okay like like engage with the content and the kids are like just clicking on things making making things fart and the adults are getting upset and crucially what Ito points out is they're doing this because it upsets the adults I'm going to say this mm-hmm. I'm going to come out I'm going to be truth teller on this issue Okay. I don't think there's a thing that was less educational for me as a child Mm -hmm. than the magic school bus. (laughs) Didn't learn a single thing? No. Mm Mm-hmm. God, no. Nothing. I learned that that redhead kid can't get his shit together. Yeah, Arnold. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I learned that. He just, he can't shut the hell up, get, yeah. get on that damn bus, <laughs> quit complaining. Or well, he doesn't, he doesn't go into the bus in, in the game because the bus goes into him. I know. I saw that episode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, like there, the benefit of having grown up at the same time is like everything she's saying. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly true. <laughs> like there's maybe nothing more true than what's being said about, uh, the lack of actual educational content here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I I do think it's really interesting, too, that like. Uh, that it's partially the success of the stuff is partially based on like a market bet for CD ROMs, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. because in order to make these games work, it's about art assets mm-hmm. and like having the shiniest and best looking art. And in order to make that go you had to be able to uh, have bigger storage and the CD-ROM was necessary, even though they were super expensive. And I do wonder, she doesn't get into this, but there's like a real interesting kind of, um, uh, I guess, new, for lack of a better word, neoliberal capitalism, right? There, <laughs> there's this uh, public-private partnership grant thing going on here where uh, schools got access to these things, these really expensive machines, right? Like mm-hmm. CD-ROMs are expensive, or uh, CD-ROM drives were expensive especially in the early and mid 90s 
But they also got access to them because they are attached to a, a kind of public-private government pipeline, right? That allows mm-hmm. one or two uh, top-of-the-line machines to be put into every school and eventually into like specific classrooms and things like that. It requires a particular alignment of educational ideology and a belief that like computers are the future. How are we going to get these kids to learn computers? We, I guess, we got to learn them through. Um, through these entertainment packages, right? Uh, right. Of, of these very specific games. I think it's in this chapter where she mentions that um, in this moment, in educational game development companies, uh, artists overtook any other staff member. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's like more people churning out art assets than any other individual kind of discipline within the game companies. Because the kids have the kids have lots of opinions about graphics, right? They want the right. they want to play the games that look the coolest or have the neatest animations. Uh, there's like an interesting theory of the special effect that happens here. Uh, this is from page one twenty six. Um, interactive media are predicated on the consumer's active engagement rather than negating the medium's spectacular qualities. This interactivity actually serves to create a new genre of special effect in which the player is able to control and manipulate the production of the effect. So it's not just like, oh, the game has a cool special effect, but you get to show off to your friends or you and your friends get to show off to the adult in the room the special effects that you make happen on the computer and are therefore a part of. Right. Right. like you become part of the spectacle by showing off what uh, is elsewhere called kind of like a expertise, right? The the, the mm-hmm. young wizards assistants are supposed to show off their expertise of these games uh, to other kids, which goes wrong in some really uh, hysterical ways uh, that we'll talk about it in the next chapter. <laughs> um, uh, but the other kind of case study here being uh, SimCity 2000, right? Uh, the kids are playing SimCity 2000 and they are, Absolutely. Uh, Of course. Right. They just want to build the weirdest cities possible and then blow them up. Yeah. (laughs) Of course they do. Right. Who doesn't? (laughs) Uh, The oh, a thing we haven't said here, uh, but but is important. Do you know uh, what 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 was the maybe gender breakdown here? Oh, uh, wait, uh. Here, like in fifth dimension generally or on Uh these games. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I forgot to make a note of this, but I know that uh, I don't remember if it's this chapter or next chapter where she talks about how like. All the girls start getting shut out of SimCity. Yeah. Because all the older boys want to play it. Right. And so, yeah, there's something going on here, too. Just just to note there. There are these claims that get made here in the book about like gender and particular types of play in this chapter and in the next chapter um, that that I would have liked more information about. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that I think, because a claim that gets made in the next chapter is like, boys like blowing up the Sim City more than girls do, who mm-hmm. prefer Sim Town. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I, there, there's a lot of like, okay, but that's interesting as like a flat claim, like in terms of like reportage of a thing you saw. But why do we think that there, there's actually this maneuver that's made in the book to be like is because video games are associated with action media. And so these boys are trying to action media up their games. Mm-hmm. Right. Even though it's a game that is not action based. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, young men also like railroads 
and like <laughs> uh, you know what I mean like people like lots of things and obviously there's like gender selection there in terms of like what is made available to you mm-hmm. um but I don't think it's like I I just am unclear that it's like I I don't know boys like blowing up cities and girls like taking care of towns like I don't that's insufficient for me uh, right. and that's kind of flatly just presented here because it is a thing that was witnessed right but I do think that maybe there's more to be dug into there. Yeah, I do think it's I mean, we do get uh, some descriptions of some girls uh, playing the games and everything. But I do think it is notable that all of the kids who are like centralized experts in the various case studies, they're all boys. Yeah, right. Um, in the notes here, you have something that says read this on air, but it's just a, a page number. <laughs> That's right. I do have that. It's on page 140 okay. in, the, in the printed book, if you have it. Mm hmm. It's exactly what I was just talking about, actually. Oh, okay. All right. So I'm glad you're bringing I forgot that I marked it. Okay. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't mm-hmm. something really super important. I, no, it is important. I'll read it. Okay. It's worth reading. The spectacular dimensions of new media deserve special mention. The atomized consciousness of a player engaging with a special effect is a small moment attached to a large socio-technical apparatus. Whether in movies or video or computer games... Special effects drive budgets and bring in audiences. This relationship is indicative of a particular kind of industry maturation, where a growing consumer base supports larger production budgets, but also increases investor risk, driving the push towards sure-hit products, sequels, formulaic content, and guaranteed crowd-pleasers. Special effects also weed out independent developers who don't have the budgets to compete in production value in similar genres. As the children's software industry matured, the family entertainment genre shifted from playing a more hybrid role in bridging entertainment and learning goals to playing a more closely aligned to TV culture than school culture. Mm -hmm. Although a title such as The Magic School Bus still appealed to educational content, later titles in the genre abandoned these educational cultural markers even for software-oriented to young children. And so, like, this is the preview of the, the argument that I was just talking about that gets made in the next chapter, which is like, the the it's not just that these things are being it made to be entertainment right mm-hmm. which is like whatever it is that consolidation in the industry aligns them more powerfully with other highly valued valorized right parts of other industries that are also experienced in the same way um and so like i mean the thing gets mentioned in the next chapter is like the super mario brothers movie Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it had as major an impact as, as the book might claim, mm-hmm. um, but that the what's important about what's happening to educa- educational games here, right, in, in terms of this book, is that they have to it, their increased special effectness means they have to begin to pull toward other markers of cultural blockbuster value, mm-hmm. and I think that that ended up being true, right? Because yeah. like you know I'm thinking about the tweet and like you never want to like. I mean, I do it all the time, so I guess maybe I do want it, right? But you, you don't want to reduce the world down to, like, people's random tweets. But there was, like, a, a you know, a light Twitter argument that occurred recently uh, where someone was like, I can't believe Baldur's Gate 3 won, uh, won Game of the Year at the Game Awards because Spider-Man 2 came out this year, and they posted a video, and the video was, like, 95% a cutscene and then, like, 5% a uh, QTE, right? Uh-huh quick time event and a lot of people had a lot of opinions about that most most of those opinions at least the ones i saw were like 
why would you post a non-interactive thing, you know, to, like in the in terms of like the video game goodness, right? What mm-hmm. what here is a video game, right? But I think those people missed like the ultimate power of that statement, which is exactly what Ido's saying from 20 years ago, right? Which is that the alignment, the reason that person feels that way about the game is has nothing to do with gaminess, right? In any kind of way, interactivity, any of the things we associate with that, right? It has to do with the package of aesthetics that is associated with value and valorization. Mm-hmm. This Spider-Man game looks as good as any other blockbuster product, and it is packaged into a bunch of other interactive moments that make you feel like you're Spider-Man. All of this is experienced as a kind of aesthetic, right? Like, it's a thing that we look we look at and enjoy and play with, and the sharp divides between, like, gameplay, cutscene, aesthetics, whatever, those things are not felt. Mm-hmm. Those are not primary differences. And like, if you look at like, not people writing about games, but if you look at Steam reviews, if you look at Reddit, if you look at the way that people are talking about these things, right? There is not the strong divide that we find in game studies. And I think we see some of the root of it here. I'm saying all of that, which is just some like off the cuff, uh, off the cuff thoughts about aesthetics. I'm working, I think, on a larger project at this point about video game aesthetics. And so uh, this is on the brain for me right now. I've been doing some reading around it too. But I think that Ido's showing us some of the root of that, um, or at least one of the emergence points, which is like the the ability to experience uh, the Magic School Bus as a video game and the ability to experience the Magic School Bus as a TV show. And for these things to be uh, fun, there's actually a really good analysis of fun that's in this book. Um, the ability for all these things to be understood as fun and for children, these children to like flatten that experience, I think is indicative of a larger condition. I think we're all doing this quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and, and this is maybe my, you know, now episode 65 of warring against immersion, right? (laughs) This aesthetic reality, I think is why I don't get along with immersion as like a tool for thinking, Mm -hmm. which is, I think that immersion uh, dodges or obviates some of these things rather than addressing them directly at the level of aesthetics. Looking forward to reading about it. You want to talk about fun? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, tune Actually, in in like seven years mm-hmm. when I've had more thought about it. I really thought this was a good... Did you Did you note this? I, did, I don't have your notes pulled up here. I can click over to them. But uh, did, did this... Because, you know, fun is notoriously like a word that um, is imprecise, unhelpful. Um, you know, I, I know some people like ban it in their classrooms, in their game studies classrooms, because it just doesn't get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I think this is like a really useful discussion of fun. Did you did you feel that way? Yeah, let me just I'm cross referencing the notes to see if I oh, I uh, put this under the whole like rubric of Ian and SimCity. Ian is our SimCity expert, and we'll talk a lot about him in in the next chapter where he gets his uh, time to shine. Uh, yeah, uh, I what I thought was really interesting about the way she talks about fun in this chapter. This is I'll just quote this from uh, the page, which is one thirty three. Uh, Kids' awareness of fun as a legitimate site of resistance to certain adults' goals. Yes, right. That's what I thought was great. Yeah, this idea that um. 
like what is it, this this echoes what she said in the previous chapter about like the kid uh roger shaking hands with the game designers right that uh the game offers opportunities to f- for fun uh that are ways of resisting the educational impetus that is ostensibly like at the heart of the the ordeal right that oh you want me to uh learn about the human body well i'm learning a lot about the human body i'm learning that there are parts of it that you click on and they make fart noises (laughs) uh It's so but, good. Yeah. But actually, uh, this is this specific. This is following on. Is this when he's. Yeah, he's he's playing solitaire. He's not even playing like one of the educational games. Ian is just like sitting at one of the machines playing like Windows solitaire. And uh, one of the attendants comes over and says like, uh, uh, yo, Ian, we're taping on this machine. So get somebody to play with. Hello. Are you listening to me? Ian, what? I'm going to exit you. Why? I'm having fun. Because this is, we're spending money to videotape at this machine, and unless you want to help somebody play a game, then get off of it. I'll help them play this. No, this isn't a game in the maze, so solitaire is not part of the the wizard's maze. Uh, Unfortunate. Right? And Ian says, so I can make it be one. Uh, And the ethnographer says, who says, and then closes out his game of solitaire. Why did the ethnographer say, who says? Right? I can make it be one. Who says? <laughs> well, now he's telling you he can do it. Right. He says. Uh, very funny thing. Uh, I I actually thought uh, that the conversation that happened right beforehand, not with Ian, but with Chris, was even better. Um, I, I'll back it up a little bit. Activity that is not directed oh. toward a particular adult's goals are described as, quote, just for fun even though that some activity might in other contexts be an achievement-oriented task. Children can be politically savvy about the uses of fun, realizing that it is a legitimate form of child-identified activity that can provide a a space of self-determination. In one example, when Chris is playing Dr. Brain, the site director stops by and there's a discussion of whether this game counts in the maze that structures the children's movement through the club activity system. Well, you may never become a wizard's assistant, the director warns, I don't care, Chris replies as he <laughs> continues playing. I'm just going to have fun. That's, yeah, that's like the, the famous shoes video. What are you going to do what? with your life, Kelly? I'm going to do what I want. Uh, I Oh, the, even earlier than that, I love the bit where um, <laughs> there's the kid playing Sim City and he's just like going hog wild, doing doing wild stuff. And oh, maybe it's a girl even. Uh, but like one of the adults uh, tries to, uh, say like oh you're like you're you're going into debt uh so who cares debts are cool states the boy <laughs> yes. I, I wrote down debts are cool neoliberalism baby <laughs> who cares debts are cool that's when i was like i love when kids are in academic books yeah. i love when people just flatly transcribe what children tell you right uh, who cares debts are cool <laughs> That's true, but I I do like this notion. I mean, so there's two things. The the reason I bring this up are like two uh, really valuable things going on in this book. One is I think Edo's right. I think that like the notion of fun, uh, you know, um, whether or not fun is this thing, right? Like there's no ontology to fun, right? That's This is why I think a lot of people ban the term and they just don't want to engage with it, right? There's no ontology to fun. There's no essence to fun, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a it is a, a descriptor you put on to things. It is not a thing in itself. Okay, great. We're all on the same page, hopefully. For children, they recognize that in their heart. They mm-hmm. recognize, at least in like the Anglophone world in America, right? We got we always got to kind of bracket these kinds of things, right? They recognize that the word fun is like a get out of jail free card, right? Of like, I'm saying I'm having fun, which isn't really me militating against obligation. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do the thing you're telling me to. And I have like a positive pro-social way of phrasing that, which is I'm having fun. <laughs> the negative way is I am not listening to you. <laughs> Go away. <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> and so I'm having fun is like the socially acceptable mechanism for expressing a very negative value, which is is great. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't have that many of those. Right. <laughs> uh, another one of them is like, um, I'm experiencing my freedom. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't tread on me. That's a you know, right? That's, uh, like ostensibly positive language to describe a deeply negative affect. Right. Right. Um, how. And so on one hand, that's that's an interesting insight backed up by some cool data here, backed up by observation. I like that. This is a cool place to go. If you want to talk about fun, I think this like two pages on it is a really good place. Probably the best articulation I have seen of what's up with fun, maybe anywhere in game studies. Hmm. Just raw two pages. Okay, there's that. Second thing, I think that this is very helpful for understanding the contemporary moment of uh, you know, adults who are playing games who say things like, I don't care about, this is not political, this is just fun to me. Mm. This is escapism. This is whatever, right? Those are ostensibly pro-social, positive things. I'm here to escape. I'm here to not think about the real world, right? I'm here to get away from it. I'm here to have fun in my Baldur's Gate or whatever, right? That is positive rhetorical framing for a deeply negative affect, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, I would like to not think about the implications of the thing I'm engaging with, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think they're connected. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that they are the same rhetorical form that is ported from um, a gaming culture of childhood that we're, most of us are enculturated into, right, around this notion of fun and what fun can do for you as a rhetoric of non-obligation and of active spurning of social obligation. And then we port it into adulthood. Mm-hmm. It it's operates the same way. Mm-hmm. Rhetorically, self-same. Right. And she doesn't of- she doesn't do that thing other than by saying that like this is the staging ground. There there there's some book in between the the digital is kid stuff in engineering play that makes this argument extremely clear. You know what I mean? Like there, <laughs> yeah. there's an ironclad argument to be made between these two books uh, around these arguments. But I think that's a really helpful thing. Sorry, you were going to say something. Oh, I don't even remember. Oh, just uh, right. Like kids are using this to resist like authority of adults who are saying, uh, here's what you need to be doing right. Here is what the game is for. Uh, whereas adults are doing this to resist a sort of more nebulous authority. But it is like the the to be a Lacanian about it. Right. The injunction of the big other, some sort yeah. of assumed like institutional figure who is saying, like, think about this critically. No, I'd rather not. I'm having fun. Yeah. I you know what I'll be a Lacanian on that. Yeah, it's the big yeah, other. Right. Right. Uh it's it's the production of a knowledge form on them. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? If we, if we want to go somewhere else. Uh <laughs> you know, it is uh Machinesis <laughs> or Machesis, I can't remember. Machina. Uh, uh, <laughs> the um uh I think Mazzarella uses a term for this that I don't prefer, and so I in my book I uh invented a new term. 
and then proceeded to never use it again <laughs> other than in that one chapter. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, that's how it's welcome to write an academic book. Anyway, I, I thought those were like two really exciting pieces of this book that they don't really get played out anywhere. Right. But they kind of set my mind on fire in terms of like, oh, you could, you can take these claims about aesthetics, about the kind of packaging here that Ito is making, or you can take these claims about fun and you can do a lot with them. You know, it's a really, they, they are really impactful three or four pages each. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, the burp gun killed America. Did you see that? Uh, I know you wrote this down, but I did not make a note about the burp gun. It's at the very beginning of the chapter. Um, Ido makes the claim that the burp gun is like a, which I guess I don't, I don't know. It's from the fifties. I guess it's a gun that you pull the trigger and it burps. I don't, I actually don't know what it does, but it's called the burp gun. And it was explicitly non-educational. Oh, okay. It's a toy. I, I remember this now, yeah. Right? And so in the 1950s, children had to, you know, as she's saying, children had to actively lobby mm-hmm. in conjunction with the toy industry in order to change the framework of what are toys. Right. Oh, and this happens through television, right? Because right, right. Uh, television becomes a site where you can advertise directly to children in order to marshal them to get them to buy things that their parents are not going to want to buy on their own. Yeah. Can you imagine being like the toy executive or the marketing executive even in like 1952 was like, oh, my God, we can do an end run on the nuclear family. (laughs) We can go DTC on 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 children. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's that's like a cyberpunk. That's a neuromancer style. Like we got to do the heist. And it's yep. beaming it's beaming toy ads directly into the minds of children across the globe. Right. And this is Here's where how she, we're gonna do it. Yeah, she mentions uh like uh children's authentic play starts getting commodified and marketed through these these like toys or sort of like through this children's popular culture, right? Like authentic children's play is positioned as always a little bit against the grain of a of adults. Mm-hmm. I'm right. having fun. Right. That's what yeah, that's you don't get fun. it, pa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Want to talk about the last chapter? I just thought it was fun that like if if you take this claim about the burp gun and like read it through the rest of the the book and through the rest of neoliberal capitalism, blah, if you do that, then really the burp gun did it like destroyed a pillar of American culture by mm-hmm. itself, which is fun. <laughs> That's a fun thing to think about. Yeah. Chapter four is construction. Uh, this is a interesting chapter but uh basically turning away from explicitly like edutainment or like education focused software uh and looking at things like uh well this is where microsoft word and powerpoint show up as well as kid pics but also SimCity 2000 is kind of the, the central uh case study here uh these games or like the, the games is not the right word software right types mm-hmm. of software that is about constructing things whether that's making slides in powerpoint or making a city in SimCity, or you know making the little turtle robot move in logo which is what shows up at the very beginning of the chapter um one of the kind of big uh uh like grounding things to note here uh that ito points out is that the construction software 
is often not explicitly marketed to children in the way that the other educational software is, right? It's not being sold as this is going to teach your kid something useful. Some, SimCity 2000 is being marketed to adults, but then children are also playing it and finding it interesting in the same way that like, you know, I also remember the first time we had Microsoft Word on a computer and I found out how to make uh, word art. And so I was just like making every single word I could think of in giant orange 3D letters, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just like playing around with stuff, creating it uh, and then destroying it or, or what have you. Um, so this is just a quote from page 151. Uh, this particular genre of children's software was not about creating a new category, but about making existing authoring and construction construction tools accessible to children. This genre of software puts adult-like agency in the hands of children, moving them away from a more childlike receptive stance. So the idea being that uh, rather than taking in the algebra or whatever that Dr. Brain is teaching them, kids are learning to uh, be active and productive within the software or with the software, uh, bringing Nguyen back into the conversation here, teach and work skills, right? Teaching you how mm -hmm. to do work on the computer by letting you play around with it. Yeah, the uh, I, I do like I don't think it's in this chapter where it gets somewhere in here. Maybe it was at the beginning of the last chapter, but th there was that transformation that occurs uh, when like childhood toys become like a major part of American culture mm -hmm. that we were talking about before. And that that play becomes the work of children is the mm -hmm. is the is the argument that gets made here. Right. That like it becomes the, the social obligation that kids have is doing play. They have to. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is like a way of structuring that in a particular way. Yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, so yeah, then we get into like SimCity 2000. Oh, actually she notes just in passing, like this is, this is the chapter that's kind of like just the most bang on about where things are going. Um, mm -hmm. because she talks about, it's like, Hey, like here, as I'm writing in the, you know, mid to late two thousands, uh, so many mainstream games now are construction oriented and about player made content. And here we are 13 years after the fact being like, Oh yeah, that's just what games are now. Yeah. Oh yeah. The the vast majority of uh of games have either or of of the most popular games, right? Have like either turned themselves into sandboxes, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like one side of it, or made construction and flexibility and mastery of construction systems um the kind of like core of their thing. Mm -hmm. So like yeah. And like, you know, small problem solving. I, I think that a really interesting way of tracing the last five years of game development would just be looking at Call of Duty Warzone. Mm. And like, what what are the things, how has Warzone changed in response to, because it, it always seems to lag behind all the other BR games, but a little bit in its design decisions. I would not say that it is a leader of anything, but mm -hmm. not being a leader is really interesting because it, you can see how it chases what it thinks are the most like valuable it has very little building right in, in terms of these things but it has a lot of like introducing systems of decision making mm -hmm. you know one uh, 10 years ago one one would not have thought i don't think that the most prominent form of like call of duty play would have you making like decisions about what to do and where to go and like what goals to achieve in the game map 
You know what I mean? <laughs> As we're doing our like three lane death matches in Modern Warfare Two or whatever, right? Right. Uh, but that has happened, and so you know, in a in a world where it's not even Minecraft, right? And that's what you're you know referring to here: Minecraft and Rust and all these other games, right? But right. even in the game genres that are the most antithetical to that, I would say they've still introduced like player choice, um, understanding of the local conditions, and then how to adapt to them. Uh, going to certain points and taking them over, things like that, right? Map control and zone control. Mm-hmm. Cynically, I would say that it, it is uh, combining um, some of the freedom of these other genres with just like military logistics yeah. notions, right? You know, that maybe is what's actually happening there. But um, yeah, it's a fascinating thing. But yeah, you're right. Uh, this this The chapter called it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then, so there's a long case study on SimCity 2000 is, is this kind of thing, right? It's kind of the, uh, a good example because it is marketed sort of generally, uh, therefore it has adult users, but also, uh, child users. Uh, and then because it is introduced as a new game during one of the wizard's birthday parties and That's therefore right. becomes a huge topic of interest for all the kids at fifth dimension in particular this boy named ian who is so fixated on playing SimCity 2000 that he like navigates the entire wizard maze just to get to the end because the prize at the end is you get to play SimCity 2000 and then he well, goes yeah. hog wild <laughs> well i think he's the kid that like essentially it's a gift for him right uh, like he's so yeah. jazzed up about it that like the quote unquote the wizard gets it for his birthday, but it's basically demand from this kid is so high mm-hmm. uh, that they like buy it for the thing. And lots of kids are doing that thing. That that was an interesting thing that I thought showed up here is that SimCity 2000 was so interesting that like it kind of warped the fifth dimension around it mm-hmm. uh, because they started limiting playtime to 15 minutes or 30 minutes so mm-hmm. that more people could play it per opening uh of of the fifth dimension and uh kids started like really strategically navigating the maze in order to to do that so i thought it was interesting that like it's such a powerful carrot Mm -hmm. yeah and so this is also where we get so the the kids when they start out playing it are doing what we said uh in the last chapter right they're just sort of messing around they're making the weirdest and wackiest cities possible and the adults are trying to get them to understand like tax rates and things like that and the kids are not interested uh until there's a moment where they get an like an undergraduate or whatever you know one of these uh older uh people who is like helping out the kids who is an expert so basically they bring in some college undergraduate who is familiar with SimCity 2000 and then he starts showing the kids can you imagine being the the SimCity 2000 ringer (laughs) the hero of the people so he starts showing the kids like here is how like the game is to be played right he starts modeling for them here is how you take into account all of the various uh things that you have to think of to actually uh you know make the city go uh, and then suddenly there's like this culture shift where the boys get really technical with it, right? The the play of boys become with with SimCity 2000 starts uh, taking after this where they're like coming up with like, you know, best practices for how to lay out the city and how to set your tax rates and whatever. Um, and this starts excluding girls. Uh, this is, you know, some of the stuff that you were referring to also. And there's this fairly sad story of one girl who also really wants to play SimCity 2000, navigates the entire maze to get there, uh, plays it for one session, hates it, is frustrated by it, and then gives up. And somehow we know that the the town that she made was called Dumb Town. 
that's how that's how unimpressed she ultimately was by this thing that she wanted to play. These are the field the field notes. Yeah. From the undergrad. She blew her budget on things not really needed. She called her town exclusively La Jolla in her first three attempts. But as she started giving up on the game, she was calling her town dumb town. She was giving up without really trying. Mm. There are no records of her playing with the game after this instance of play. Yeah. That's my uh, that's that's for the documentary based on <laughs> SimCity 2000. That is that's my white text on the black screen that comes up right before the credits. <laughs> Yeah, and so this is uh, uh, positioned in the chapter a little bit after Ito has talked about the emergence of like hacker masculinity. So that's yeah. part of partly why that's coming up, right? Is that there's mm-hmm. the construction genres often uh, pivot on promises of technological mastery that have a gendered component, although yeah. uh, there isn't a lot dug into there in the chapter. It's, it is just an mm-hmm. observation that is made. Well, and the Consolvo stuff comes in here around gaming capital. Mm-hmm. Um like there, there's a gender selection effect that happens here because uh, if the girls play, then they are going to get uh, interacted with by the the crowd because there's a crowd around it all the time. Mm-hmm. Like if you play SimCity, SimCity 2000 in this lab, someone's going to be standing around talking to you about it, watching you play, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a, this kind of pressure effect where when the boys play, there's a reaffirmation of boys play right uh-huh. of particular ways of doing that when girls are doing it they're just getting pushed out right right um and like i i just you know it's like it's a book so like you you only get what you get right but like i just am more curious about this especially because there is there's an opportunity here with the data set that is available to say more about it than here's an example of the things that we already know about from the lit base right from like the other thing that we do there's actually the opportunity here in the undergraduate notes or in the uh, video recordings or whatever to like say more about how are these girls playing what are they doing how are the boys doing it and we get reportage of it and we get how it fits in the lit base but we don't get much more analysis of it and that's why i was really missing here is like well you told me that boys play a, a certain way and girls play a different way and i knew that before from the other books that i've also read it, it, i i guess I, I mean maybe it's just like you know here's an affirmation of reality it does happen this way, mm-hmm. uh, but it's kind of sad. Yeah, I just I know that there's more here, and it you know in terms of like the raw data, and it's just not in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, I did did you know two things I want to point out here? One, this SimCity 2000 ad is wild. Oh, the one where it's like uh, uh, you could be Mister Rogers or Mister Hussein. Yeah, it just says Mister Rogers or Mister Hussein, and it's like an idyllic. Little New York Street versus like a like a burned out tower. Yep. It's like damn. The nineties were wild. Yeah. Um, the uh, and the other one I really like. We were talking about this kind of like play mastery that's appearing. It's when Ian figures out seaport demand and everyone <laughs> ignores him. <laughs> yes. Never empathize more with a child. I uh, you know in a in an academic book than. They like open up the demand graph, right? To see uh-huh. like, do you need to build more commercial space? Do you need to build more residential? And they're like, R, and it's like another little kid figuring out. And the kid's like, R is for residential. C is for commercial. I is for industrial. And they like kind of gloss over S. Mm-hmm. And Ian's like, S is for seaport. <laughs> S is for seaport. And he's like saying it repeatedly and they are ignoring him. Yeah. And I was like, damn, Ian, I'm sorry that happened to you, man. You had it. You knew what was up. (laughs) 
it's here that I have to admit that I am Ian. Yeah. Uh, I I used to play in the fifth dimension. That's why I know so much about it. Okay. Yeah. You were uh, you were. Uh, I was ignored as a child. I knew S was for Seaport. <laughs> I was gonna say we get some details about Ian. It's like Ian was like noted as a problem child at school. Yep, that's what I said. I'm Ian. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you don't figure out your way in life until you're uh, like twenty. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know. Oh, the other uh, thing that sometimes that, you just really like SimCity. Sometimes. And you really personally identify with it. That's one of the other things that comes out here is that uh, and there is some description of these two girls who are playing Sim Tower. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like there's a even though these Sim games are like so uh, abstract, uh, there's strong sense of there's there's a strong sense of identification. So Mm -hmm. like these girls playing Sim Tower are like naming particular people in the tower and like naming them after their friends. And like, you know, it's like this is my friend Tamika. She's going to lunch and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then when they're playing SimCity 2000, they all get super invested in like, where do they put the mayor's house when they unlock Mm -hmm. that? Because they see it as their house. Uh well, I think this was common because this is partially what ended up producing The Sims. Yes. Like this desire in players. Yeah. Which is interesting. Sorry, you were saying about oh. Ian. So then Ian takes the the personal connection uh, even further by becoming like the designated SimCity 2000 expert because he is so, so into this game. Leading and so he ultimately uses the internet to figure out cheat codes, which he starts sharing with the other kids at the group. And so they're all just subverting the actual like strictures of the game that are supposed to teach them things in order to turn it into like a freeform design tool. And then uh, the best output of this is when they send Ian to another club as like a representative to be like the the young expert who's going to introduce the the game to the club because it's like they just got it right he is going to be the kid showing the other kids like here's this new game and here's how you play it the first thing he does is show them the cheat codes <laughs> and and uh Ito talks about how all the adults are just like uh <laughs> it's not what we wanted you to do ian too bad. <laughs> this is resistance. Uh huh. This this is breaking out of the, the of the man system. <laughs> Down there in the sewer, uh, Ian, don't use the cheat codes. Uh. Ian uses it. I love it. I love. Uh, this is from one. This is Ian talking to an undergraduate, teaching the <laughs> teaching the undergrad the cheat codes. Uh huh. It's on page one seventy nine. Um, I'm gonna. I'll read. I'm just going to read the first thing Ian says, but also uh, Ito's like narrative at the beginning. Ian used the backdoor code as a way of expanding the space for personal agency, and he worked toward building a network of co-conspirators who would reproduce this alternate alternative mode of play. In the following excerpt from the tapes of his play, he had just been working to build a subway system, but has difficulty and needs to keep bulldozing and reconstructing. This process leads to a discussion of how much money he has wasted, but how it doesn't matter because his use of a secret code. And this is what Ian says to begin the transcript. We wasted hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I don't believe it. We just wasted about $500,000 trying to connect the subway and it was already connected. (laughs) (laughs) Truly, anyone who has ever played a city builder can empathize infinitely with Ian in that moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who among us has not spent hundreds of things i just love i don't believe it yep <laughs> it was already connected 
We wasted and then he tries to teach the undergraduate the cheat codes, and that's funny. Yeah. Apparently, the cheat code was porn, porn tips Gazardo. Yes, that was the SimCity 2000 money cheat code. So this is... Um, undergraduate says, are you going to show me how? You're not going to show me the secret? Why not? Ian says, promise you won't tell anybody? Undergraduate says, I won't tell anybody. Ian says, okay. Porn tips Gazardo. Undergraduate. <laughs> what did you push? What did you press? Red tips? Ian, porn tips Gazardo. Undergraduate. Wait, I don't remember. Ian, then you kept pressing Gazardo. Undergraduate. Where, where'd you learn that? Somebody taught it to me. Undergraduate. <laughs> so you go, Ian, every time you type that, it gives you another half million dollars. Continues to type Gazardo, which continues to add money as citizens cheer. Undergraduate. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't think I need any more. Wow, they're cheering up a storm on the screen. Uh, look at how much we have. I don't think we need any more. Ian, that's not very much. Undergraduate, not very much. So it's porn tips. Then how do you spell the last gaz? Ian, Gazardo. Undergraduate, Gazardo. Ian, Gazardo. Double Z. Undergraduate, double Z. Thanks. <laughs> I just love. <laughs> it's like comedy routine of this kid going Gazardo, Gazardo, uh-huh. Gazardo. <laughs> so good. Anyway, yeah, so this is the the future of all. We're all Ian now. Yep. Mm-hmm. We're all typing porn tips Gazardo. <laughs> yep, uh, and that's kind of where the chapter ends, where uh, Ito says uh, that these authoring tools are, quote, practically rather than symbolically anti-authoritarian. Um, it's a pretty mm-hmm. big claim that is getting made there, but um, I think it's really interesting. Like, I think it makes a lot of sense for when she's making it, because I think this gets complicated once we move into the platform era, which I think is defined by, uh, like, authoring tools being made available and sort of, uh, you know, how do you uh, tailor the set of authoring tools available to your users in a way that contains them or at least produces certain behaviors or outcomes that you want? Um I think that's where those questions start coming in, but at least for the the way that she's looking at it, right, that mm-hmm. these authoring tools are ways of, uh, or they provide ways for kids slipping out of the uh, extremely teleological way of thinking about education or like what childhood play is supposed to be. Yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a conclusion. Uh, she says... Uh, quote, we will begin to see systemic effects only when the different sites of practice that is, uh, you know, all these things that she's talked about link up across the circuit of culture, coalesce into recognizable genres of culture and participation and become embedded in the structure and practices of institutions. And I would say again, this is kind of what Nguyen's book was about. Yep. I mean, kind of. Yep. All those teens on the Instagram. <sighs> Learning how to be a modern subject. Mm-hmm. I would simply never learn how to do that. <laughs> Typing porn tips Gazardo into Instagram to get 500 million followers. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go right now, not to Instagram. I'm okay. gonna go to uh, the Devil's website, and I'm mm-hmm. gonna in quotation marks Google porn tips Gazardo. In quotation, let's see. There are a lot of people who are typing porn tips Gazardo into the evil website. And what's coming up? They're just typing it in. Oh, okay. In response to like, uh, what's the first cheat code you ever used? Mm-hmm. There's like, uh, <laughs> you know, like, we need money for something. And someone will reply with just porn tips Gazardo. 
<laughs> yeah, it's good. Yep. People just posting screenshots of screens SimCity 2000 and just uh, quote quote retweeting with porn tips Casardo. That's a thing. <laughs> yep, that's good. Well, that's the book. That's the book. I like this one. Yep, I think it's good. It's good. Mm-hmm. We're all saying it. It's good. All right, cool. Well, we don't know what the next book is, do we? Uh, no, we don't. Unless, I mean, well, my question to you is going to be: Is the summer of children or the summer of children? Jeez, yeah. Just Please. we're we're just actually children from now on. That's the focus but, of this show. Yeah, yeah. We're not. We we haven't said it, but <laughs> we're only reading books about children. Yeah. Um, no, I don't know. Is the winter of children over? Uh. It might be over. Maybe. I might be tired of reading about kids. <laughs> well, we'll make that decision and then and then let everyone know, I guess. As as is typical for us now, uh making our decisions off air and then disseminating it through our various platforms and presences later. Yeah, we'll let you know. Um, thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed listening to this, you can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch. It's in the description down below this episode, wherever you're listening to it. You can go do that and uh help us out. Um, by uh, kicking some money our way at $3 a month, you can get access to our notes. At $5, you get access to a bunch of bonus episodes that we do for all of our different shows. And at $10 a month, you get even more stuff, including the massive archive of uh, bonus episodes we did for our Homestuck show. I promise you, if you like the stuff we're talking about in The Winter of Children, you should read Homestuck. By the way, you did not <laughs> You mention... should read Homestuck? Sure. <laughs> okay. Give it a shot. All yeah. right. You didn't mention the uh, the Homestuck deep lore that you, you oh. shared with me. Yeah. I'm glad that we just talked about this because otherwise we would have forgotten. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, so one of the things that is, I, I mentioned this very briefly, uh, there's a computer program uh, called Logo that was made by Seymour Papert. I'm not sure if you if it's Papert or Pepper, but he was an MIT Media Lab guy. That's uh, the most MIT ass name you can come yeah. up with too. <laughs> Seymour Pepper, inventor of logo. <laughs> uh, and it was like a uh, uh, basically a little like piece of children's software from the early 90s uh, that taught you how to code. Right. It was uh, the, the, the sort of conceit was uh, there was a little uh, turtle. That's what they called it. It's uh, it could either be a physical robot or it could be like a representation of the robot on your screen. And you typed certain commands and made it move in certain ways and you could set up uh, patterns or rather, you know, you could basically write a little function that made the turtle move, uh, do complex movements, right? Like mm -hmm. do multi kind of stationary movements in in uh, re in repetition. We never, ever used this for what it's worth. I just remember it always being on the computers in the computer lab when I was in elementary school. We never used it because every I always wanted to know about it because, like, I heard about that turtle, right? Like, little Michael, like, was like, oh, wait, there's a turtle? I want to I know about this turtle. Uh, but all the teachers that I ever talked to about it were like, we're not going to use it because I don't understand it. So, <laughs> uh, so much for that. Uh, but then I was looking into uh, Logo, uh, sort of seeing like what people did do with that and how it works. And it turns out like one of the main things that you could do with Logo was program the turtle to walk in a spirograph pattern that is just the spirograph pattern that is central to Homestuck. It's the like, quote unquote, like logo for the Spurb game the kids play. And so uh, the ways in which Homestuck is like 
weirdly nestled in precisely this like 80s 90s culture of children's media and particularly this kind of like technological aspect of it and what happens when you put kids and computers together never stops from from being relevant i guess yeah you always you dig one level deeper you find more kid stuff yeah like i saw like i looked up logo screenshots and i was like son of a bitch <laughs> like andrew hussey was absolutely playing logo in elementary school god so we got to get that. We got to get that in the, in the non-game. Uh-huh. In the medium. Was that what it was called? Yes, the medium. I have I have forgotten everything about Homestuck. It's so liberating. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you can hear more about that stuff over there if you want to do that. Thanks so much for listening. You can also, uh, on your platform of choice, if you listen to this on Spotify or if you listen to this on iTunes or any other thing, but those are the two major ones that, that get kind of kicked out. If you uh, listen on there, please leave us a five-star review. Uh, if you leave us uh, a, a good one on uh, or, or his five stars, I don't think you can type a review in um, Spotify, but you can leave a review Apple on Apple Podcasts. Um, and, uh, you know, people don't really leave funny reviews like they leave on our other ones. They just leave, like, nice reviews that are helpful, <laughs> such as Venn Diagram saying, I love the show. It taught me a lot. There you go. That's a Venn Diagram? That's from the that's from oh. someone named Venn Diagram. Oh, okay. It's like... from a couple years ago, but uh, <laughs> Upright Virgin, who has left reviews on many of our shows, said, "My favorite Metal Gear podcast." Now, whenever I boot up a video game, I think about how my, how I'd rather be playing Lego Racers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um. Anyway, so yeah, I, if you uh, enjoy this, please leave us five stars somewhere because it just helps us out, it gets more people. We don't advertise in any kind of way other than asking you to help us advertise. So. Please uh, help us do that so we can get more people listening to Game Study Study Buddies in 2024, because we'll be starting a new year soon. All right. Thanks so much to uh, everyone for listening, and we will be back next month with another book, probably outside of the Winter of Children. Until then, the social is predicated on its exclusions, and also after them. <laughs> <laughs>